Hi, listeners. We are deeply saddened by the unfortunate spread of COVID-19. Because of this, Parcast has decided to temporarily halt recording this week. Although it pains us to interrupt your listening experience, we feel that it is a necessary action to ensure the safety of our hosts and staff. But here's the good news. It does allow me to introduce you to two episodes from another riveting ParCast series called Espionage. Hosted by my good friend Carter Roy, Espionage tells the story of a real-life spy mission, exploring the stakes, the deception, and the gadgets. And just like we cover in Gone, these tales have left an indelible mark on history. The episodes you're about to hear feature a real Casanova. The real Casanova, in fact. Before he died in 1798, Giacomo Casanova was known as many things. A lover, an author, an adventurer, and, of course, a spy. You can hear more stories of history's greatest moles by following Espionage on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Friday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It was November 1st, 1753 in Murano, an island just off the coast of Venice. Giacomo Girolamo Casanova had just taken All Saints Day Mass at Santa Maria degli Angeli Church, and he was about to board a gondola back to his home in Venice when a nun from the church's convent appeared before him. Without a word, the nun dropped a note at his feet and vanished into the crowd. Intrigued, Casanova picked up the envelope and broke the shimmering gold seal. The note read, A nun who has seen you in her church every feast day for the past two and a half months wishes you to make her acquaintance. Instructions followed. If Casanova wanted to meet this mysterious nun, he would send his reply to the church San Conziano in the heart of Venice. A messenger would be waiting for him at the first altar on the right. Casanova was intrigued, but could this mysterious nun be trusted? What if this invitation was a trap? What if he was walking right into the claws of the most dangerous men in Europe, the shadowy, all-powerful enemies of everything Casanova stood for? The Inquisition. This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions behind the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. Throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm your host, Carter Roy. You can listen to all of ParCast shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. New episodes come out on Fridays. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on Giacomo Girolamo Casanova, the infamous ladies' man, con man, gambler, charlatan, and most curiously, spy. This week... We'll follow Casanova's attempts to avoid the secret agents of the Venetian Inquisition. Next week, we'll explore the dramatic turn of events that led him to work as an informant for the Inquisition. 
Casanova's journey into the clandestine service of the Venetian Inquisition, like many of Casanova's stories, begins with a woman, in this case, a nun. Casanova had every reason to be suspicious of the mysterious letter he received from the nun in November 1753. In the 1750s, the Council of Ten, which oversaw state security and intelligence in the Republic of Venice, employed an extensive network of spies to root out possible plots of treason or other security threats. These crimes were prosecuted by a secretive tribunal of three judges, called the State Inquisitors. According to Dr. Iona Iordanu, a senior lecturer at Oxford Brookes University, the Venetian Inquisition was one of the world's earliest centrally organized state intelligence services. In the 16th century, the Venetian government made use of the Bocchi di Leone, stone boxes shaped like lion's mouths, where citizens could drop accusations and complaints about their neighbors. Almost overnight, the boxes were flooded with so many anonymous tips that the government didn't have time to sort through them. Similar systems were utilized during the 15th century, where citizens could anonymously report their neighbors for failing to meet public health standards during the second pandemic of the Black Plague. Many of the laws the Inquisition enforced were religious in nature. Blasphemy, magic, witchcraft, and impure behavior were punishable offenses. But in truth, the Inquisitors were less concerned with maintaining a pious society and more concerned with maintaining power. Their primary purpose was to keep the oligarchy of Venice in place. And Giacomo Casanova had committed the biggest crime of all, crossing social boundaries. Casanova came from humble origins. His father, an actor, had died when he was a child. His mother, an actress and dancer, had abandoned him to tour Europe. He'd spent his childhood bouncing from his grandmother's home to boarding houses to the eventual care of a local priest. But by 1753, the 28-year-old dilettante had won a small fortune from gambling, made a name for himself through wild brawls and sexual escapades, charmed his way into high society, and risen to near nobility. If he'd kept his head down, he might have gone unnoticed. But Casanova's wild behavior, combined with his murky background, put a target on his back. The Inquisition wanted him out of the way. They just needed an excuse. And it was very possible the nun was a spy for the Inquisition, luring him into a trap. He should have ignored the note, but the fortune he'd won was long spent, and despite his charming, wealthy reputation, he was a compulsive gambler with crippling debt. There was a chance that, whatever this nun wanted from him, she would offer him payment in return. It was a risk Casanova was willing to take. So, in early November 1753, Casanova journeyed back to the Santa Maria degli Angeli convent in Murano to meet his mysterious nun. There, in a private room, he saw her for the first time. 
Even behind her habit, Casanova liked what he saw, her brown hair, her delicate features. She introduced herself as Maria Eleonora Michiel, the daughter of a well-known and wealthy Venetian family, just as Casanova had hoped. After a brief introduction, they parted ways and vowed to meet again soon, somewhere more private than within the walls of the convent. Casanova felt certain that the woman wasn't a spy. She was just a lonely, beautiful nun who'd heard the rumors about his most well-known trait, his prowess as a lover. He was also certain that in a matter of days, Maria Eleonora and her money would be his. But there was one complication. Casanova's betrothed, Katerina. Earlier that spring, Casanova had promised Katerina, a young girl from Venice, his hand in marriage. Her father didn't approve. Well, for one thing, Casanova's reputation preceded him. For another, Katerina was only 14 and Casanova was twice her age. So Katerina's father sent her to live in a convent for four years to finish up her education in a more secluded, more chaste environment. At the end of that time, if Casanova had a well-established position, then Katerina would return and Casanova could take her hand in marriage. But four years was a long time to wait for a lover, and the main draw of the institution of marriage, her dowry. Casanova decided there'd be no harm in seeing Maria Eleonora for now and keeping Katerina in the dark about it. Casanova failed to consider one little detail. Katerina and Maria lived in the same convent. In fact, not long after Katerina arrived at the convent in the spring of 1753, she discovered she was pregnant. The pregnancy ended in a miscarriage before it could be discovered, but one other sister found out the truth and helped nurse Katerina back to health. That nun was Maria Eleonora. And while Maria was tending to Katerina's bedside, they shared a few kisses. Katerina's father had succeeded in sheltering her from male influence, but the convent walls weren't quite as chaste as he'd hoped. It wasn't long before Maria and Katerina became lovers. Maria didn't know that Casanova was Katerina's aspiring fiance. Katerina didn't know that Maria had become the object of Casanova's affection, and Casanova didn't have any idea what he was getting into. Later that month, in November 1753, Maria told Casanova that she was ready to meet again, but they had to be careful. The Inquisition was always watching. She suggested they meet in another location, one you would never expect from a nun, a casino, the home base for all manner of debauchery in 18th century Venice, including secretive apartments designed for romantic trysts. Casanova received detailed instructions. You will go up the stairs opposite the street door, and at the top of the stairs you will see, by the light of a lantern, a green door, which will open to enter an apartment that you will find lighted. 
In the second room, you will find me. And if I am not there, you will wait for me. I will not be more than a few minutes late. Casanova found the room, sat by the fire, and opened a book. Shortly after, Maria walked in. For the first time, they were alone together, outside the walls of the convent. But Casanova was surprised when Maria rebuffed his sexual advances. She was a nun, after all. She took the vow of chastity at least somewhat seriously. They kissed for a while, then fell asleep in each other's arms. The next morning, Casanova was more confused than ever. What exactly did Maria want from him? When Casanova returned to Venice, he received a letter from Katerina. She had spied through a chink in the wall and seen Maria and Casanova in deep conversation in the back room of the convent. She demanded that Casanova tell her the truth and the whole truth about his relationship with her dear close friend, Maria Eleonora. Casanova wrote back that there was nothing between him and Maria. He assured Katerina that she had nothing to worry about. But Casanova was worried about something else. If Katerina was watching, who else might have been spying on them? A few days later, on November 25, 1753, Casanova was on a gondola bound for Murano when he noticed a man was following him in another boat. Casanova disembarked and tried to lose the man in the crowd, but to no avail. He ducked onto a barren side street and waited. When the man followed him around the corner, Casanova leapt out and put a knife to his throat. When a passerby came into view, Casanova relented and the man ran away. But there wasn't a doubt in Casanova's mind. This man was a spy for the Inquisition. The Venetian Inquisition would have frowned on cavorting with nuns and indulging in excessive pleasure. But Casanova was ruled by his heart, not his mind. He kept seeing Maria. And in late December 1753, he received a letter. Maria confessed that she'd been keeping a secret and felt it was time Casanova learned the truth. During their rendezvous at the convent, someone had indeed been watching them. Francois Joachim de Pierre de Berny, otherwise known as Abbe de Berny, the French ambassador to Venice. According to Maria, de Berny was her lover and sworn protector. He had been ensconced in a perfect hiding place from which he would not only see all that we did without himself being seen, but also hear all we said. Casanova began to panic. His suspicion had been correct, and now a government minister knew his most dangerous secret. But he kept reading. Maria wrote that de Berny wasn't angry about what he'd seen. He was delighted. He didn't want Casanova to stop seeing Maria. Rather, he wanted their relationship to continue, and he wanted to keep watching. She asked Casanova to meet her back at the casino at the end of the year. De Berny would be there. 
She wrote, You will not see him, and he will see everything. Casanova was surprised, but not put off. De Berny may have been a man of unusual taste, but at least he wasn't an Inquisition spy. He wrote Maria and told her he was all in. Casanova was flirting with disaster. If the Inquisition were to find out that a social renegade like Casanova was cavorting with not only a nun, but also the French ambassador, he would be in hot water. Yet once again, his lust won out over his logic. In early January 1754, he and Maria met again at the casino, and this time they made love for hours. De Berny watched the entire affair through a peephole in the wall. All three left satisfied and made plans to meet again soon. Not long after this frolic at the casino, Casanova received a letter from Katerina. She confessed that she and Maria were lovers. Casanova was delighted. He replied that he and Maria were lovers as well. Now that all their secrets were out, the four of them, Casanova, Katerina, Maria, and Ambassador de Berny, could continue their various trysts in peace and harmony. But de Berny wasn't the only person watching through the walls. All throughout Casanova's liaisons with Maria and Katerina, spies for the Inquisition had been monitoring his every move. Casanova's initial suspicions had been right. His days as a free man were numbered. The exact date is unclear, but sometime in 1754, Casanova made the acquaintance of a diamond dealer named Giovanni Battista Manuzzi. They met at Casanova's apartment to discuss a business transaction. As Manuzzi took in the decor, he was particularly interested in some manuscripts about magic on Casanova's bookshelf. Of course, in Catholic Venice, books on magic and witchcraft were strictly banned. Books like these were a rarity. So Casanova indulged Manuzzi's curiosity and showed off his library. The Key of Solomon, a book of magic. A Hebrew mystic text associated with the Kabbalah. Picatrix, a study of devil worship, and more. Manuzzi said he had a friend who would pay a high price for these books. He asked to borrow them for a night so he could show them to his potential buyer. Casanova, always hard up for money, agreed. But Manuzzi was not a diamond dealer, nor was he a second-hand bookseller. He was an agent of the state inquisitors, and he'd been compiling a dossier on Casanova for at least seven months. These magic books were the smoking gun the Inquisitors needed to convict him for blasphemy. Coming up, the Inquisition closes in on Casanova. Now, back to the story. In late July, 1755, Casanova went to Santa Maria degli Angeli in a panic. Earlier that day, he had been tipped off. The Inquisition had issued a warrant for him, dead or alive. He begged Maria for help. 
He needed money to get out of town, and he promised he would pay her back the first chance he got. Maria agreed and lent him some more money. But Casanova did not leave town. Like a moth to a flame, he went to the casino. If he was hoping to double Maria's money, the plan didn't work. He gambled late into the night, and by the next morning, he had lost it all. A few days later, on July 26, 1755, Casanova was at home sleeping. There was a knock on the door. In the doorway stood an official of the State Inquisitor's Tribunal. He barged in and snooped around the apartment, though it didn't take long for him to find what he was looking for. Illegal books. The official ordered Casanova to get dressed and come with him. From there, he was taken to the Doge's Palace the headquarters of the state inquisitors. The inquisitors made their rulings in secret trials without any oversight from any other government agencies. Sometimes prisoners were arrested, convicted, and sentenced without any trial whatsoever. This was the fate of Giacomo Casanova. On September 12, 1755, he was sentenced without trial to five years imprisonment in the leads. He never learned the exact charges against him, but the tribunal cited his public outrages against the holy religion. The leads was a prison on the top floor of the Doge's palace, named for the lead plates covering the roof. Once a man walked into the leads, it was likely he wouldn't walk out for a very long time, if ever. Casanova was determined to not suffer that fate. As far as he knew, no one had ever escaped from the Leds prison, but he was determined to be the first. On a warm night in August 1756, Casanova lay on the floor of his prison cell in Doge's palace he worked by lamplight. His body was covered in sweat. In his hand was a small metal bolt he had found on the floor months ago. He'd spent the past few weeks digging, scratching at the marble floor as hard as he possibly could. He had been locked away in Doge's palace for over a year now. His hole was some ten inches deep. There was only one marble panel left to go before he could make his escape. Casanova knew that his best chance to make his escape was in a few days, on August 28th, St. Augustine's Day. The entire Venetian Great Council met together that day, so the State Inquisitor's chamber directly below his prison cell would be empty and the path to freedom free and clear. But just as he was finalizing the details, fortune threw Casanova another complication. Lorenzo the Jailer. As Lorenzo's footsteps drew closer, Casanova blew out his candle, tossed the metal bolt in the hole, and dragged his pallet on top of the hole. He dove under the covers just as Lorenzo arrived. He brought devastating news. Casanova was being moved to a new cell in a different part of the prison. All the work he'd done had been for nothing. And when his hole was discovered, he'd be in even deeper trouble than he already was. Casanova later wrote, 
I wished I were also being followed by the fine hole I had made with such effort, and which I had to abandon, but it was impossible. My body moved on, but my soul remained behind. Casanova's new cell was at least an upgrade. It had a window with a panoramic view of Venice, and the high ceilings made it possible for him to comfortably stand upright. But it was cold comfort. A few days later, Lorenzo the jailer found the hole in the floor of his old cell. He demanded Casanova turn over whatever piece of contraband he had used to scratch through the marble. Casanova was caught red-handed, but he played the fool. He replied that he had no earthly idea what Lorenzo was talking about. Lorenzo ordered a subordinate to strip Casanova down and search him. The guard patted him down, searched his pallet, his chair, even his chamber pot. In the end, they couldn't find a thing. But the truth was self-evident. One way or another, Casanova had made the hole, and the Inquisitors would get to the bottom of it. Still, Casanova refused to confess. Not only that, he issued a threat. If Lorenzo ratted him out to the Inquisitors, he would tell them that Lorenzo had given him the bolt to make the hole in the first place. Lorenzo raged in anger, but there was little he could do. During the Inquisition, citizens could be locked up without any evidence of their crimes. Even a jailer was one accusation away from ending up on the other side of the bars. As soon as Lorenzo and the guards were gone, Casanova pulled out the small metal bolt he had expertly concealed in his armchair. In early September, life finally started to improve for Casanova. Lorenzo was no longer angry with him, but he was a little annoyed because Casanova kept demanding more books to read. Perhaps out of pity, or perhaps just to make him shut up, Lorenzo obliged him. He would let Casanova trade books with another prisoner, a Samascan monk named Father Marin Balbi, who occupied the cell just above Casanova's. Casanova was delighted, not only because he adored books, but because he could now send secret, coded messages to his fellow prisoner. Casanova sharpened his fingernail to a fine point and fashioned ink from black mulberry juice. To test the waters, he wrote a random, innocuous message buried deep in the pages of one of his books. The next time they swapped books, Casanova found that Father Balbi had written him a reply. Through their correspondence, Casanova eventually learned that one of his admirers had offered Lorenzo money to help Casanova escape. It's unclear how Father Balbi learned this information, but Casanova was thrilled. According to Balbi, Lorenzo had misgivings about betraying the Inquisitors, so he refused to actively help. But if Casanova tried to escape on his own, Lorenzo would probably let it happen, pretend he'd been involved, and take the money he'd been offered. Casanova quickly began planning his escape. Grateful for the information, he asked Father Balbi if he wanted to secure his own freedom too, and if he was prepared to risk everything to gain it. Balbi replied in the affirmative. He was in. 
Casanova hastened his work on digging a new hole through the floor of his new cell. After about a month, he was finally done in late September. All he had to do was get the metal bolt to Balby so he could dig through his own cell. On September 29, 1756, in honor of the feasts of St. Michael, Casanova asked for permission to cook a batch of buttered gnocchi. He wanted to show his appreciation to Lorenzo for all his hard work as a jailer, and he wanted to thank his dear friend Father Balbi for lending him his books. The gift wouldn't be complete unless he could make it with his own hands. Lorenzo wasn't willing to let Casanova venture to the kitchen, but he agreed to cooperate. He cooked the pasta, then brought the saucepan and some ingredients to Casanova's cell so he could make the seasoning himself. Standing at the door of his cell, Casanova stirred the butter into the saucepan and poured the piping hot gnocchi into bowls, filling them up to the brim. He asked Lorenzo to take a bowl to Father Balbi right away. Lorenzo complained that the bowl was too hot to carry. Casanova offered a quick solution. He would set the bowl on top of a large leather-bound Bible to protect his hands from the heat. As Lorenzo took the Bible in his hands, he didn't notice Casanova's expert magic trick. Well, magic and espionage might seem like two unrelated arts, but they have a rich history of intersection. The CIA's Manual of Trickery and Deception says, For the magician, the perfectly executed illusion is the ultimate goal. For the spy, Illusion is only a means to divert attention from a clandestine act. In the 1950s, the CIA commissioned magician John Mulholland to create a report on how stage magic techniques could be used for covert intelligence operations. One of the tactics he explored is the age-old magician's secret, sleight of hand. The key to successful sleight of hand is to misdirect the observer's attention away from the covert action. While stage magicians might misdirect the audience with colorful scarves or flowing sequined capes, spies have to use casual, natural gestures that won't raise the suspicion of even the most well-trained surveillance operative. Mulholland instructed the CIA agents that the flaming of a match rising in one hand to light a target cigarette would mask the discreet drop of a pill from the other hand. Casanova used this same trick on Lorenzo. As he placed the delicious steaming bowl of gnocchi on top of the Bible with one hand, he carefully slipped his small metal bolt underneath the bowl with the other. Lorenzo thought he was just taking Father Balbi a bowl of pasta, but he was actually handing him the tool he needed to escape. The plan went off a month later, on October 31, 1756. Casanova picked this particular night because it was a holiday. Lorenzo would be drunk. Most of the inquisitors would be out in the country enjoying their time off. That night, Casanova and Balbi climbed through the holes they had dug. They snuck through the Doge's palace and made their way to the final barrier, the roof. Casanova used the metal bolt to bash through the panels until the moonlight shone through. Because of the holiday, no one was around to hear. 
Using a rope made out of cloth napkins and bed sheets, Casanova and Father Balbi climbed out onto the sloped roof some 200 feet in the air. From there, they crawled on their hands and knees across the palace roof and climbed down into the window of a neighboring flat. Inside the flat, Casanova and Balbi ran through a maze of dark corridors and stairs, hoping to find a way down into the street. But as the sun began to rise, all the twists and turns only led them to a sturdy, locked door. Casanova tried to pick the lock to no avail. Retreat wasn't an option. It was too risky to retrace their steps. They might run into guards who'd been sent to pursue them. Casanova decided it was time for a disguise. Jonna Mendez, a retired CIA officer with more than 25 years of experience, explains that what we do with disguises is always additive. We can make you taller, we can make you heavier, we can make you older. The goal, she says, is always to blend in. Casanova, however, went the opposite direction. He removed a small bag of his own clothes from his vest, white stockings, a fine shirt trimmed with lace, and a swanky capello hat with a plume. Who would suspect a well-dressed nobleman of being an escaped convict? After changing into his expert disguise, Casanova set about fixing the problem of the locked door. He ran to a nearby window, flung it open, and called to a small crowd of people on the street for help. Fortune smiled on Casanova once again. Someone sent for an attendant who had a key to the door. As Casanova listened to the footsteps approaching, he peered through a crack in the door and sized the man up. He was alone. A set of keys jingled in his hand. This fellow looked unsuspicious, but if he tried to stop them, Casanova still had his metal bolt in his hand. If it was sharp enough to cut through the marble floor, it had to be sharp enough to cut through a man. As the door swung open, the man didn't say a word. He just stared at Casanova and Father Balbi. For a split second, Casanova wondered if the man recognized him, but he didn't wait around to find out the answer. The two men barreled through the doorway. Casanova knocked the man to the ground, unconscious. They fled down a flight of stairs towards the streets below. They ran past the statue of Neptune, through the Porta della Carta, across the Piazzetta, until they reached the canal. Balbi and Casanova hopped on the first gondola they could find. As the boat snaked its way through the canal, Casanova took a moment to consider his circumstances. He took a good look at his companion, panting and covered in sweat. They looked like a pair of charlatans, but at least they were free. But the grasp of the Inquisition reached far beyond the walls of the prison. Getting out of the leads was just step one. Step two was getting out of Venice. Coming up, Casanova and Father Balbi flee Venice. Now back to the story. Escaped prisoners Giacomo Casanova and Father Balbi docked at the port of Mestre in Venice mid-morning on November 1st, 1756. But shortly after, Balbi disappeared. 
As the morning turned to afternoon, Casanova searched everywhere for his partner in crime. He toyed with the idea of leaving Balbi behind, but he couldn't abandon the old priest to his own devices. If Balbi was captured, the Inquisitors would know Casanova wasn't far behind. He eventually found Father Balbi relaxing in a coffee house, drinking hot chocolate and flirting with a waitress. Casanova was livid. He dropped a few coins on the table, grabbed Balbi by the arm, and dragged him out into the streets. There was no time to properly chide him. They needed to keep moving. Just as they were about to hop into a carriage, Casanova heard a voice calling out to him. You there, signore! Casanova turned around to find a familiar face. Balbo Tomasi, an informant for the Tribunal of the Inquisitors. According to Casanova's own memoir, they were acquainted, but it's unclear how Casanova knew him. Casanova was surprised to see Tomasi standing there, and even more surprised when Tomasi asked him point blank, how did you manage your escape from prison? Word had clearly traveled fast, but Casanova played it cool. He said Tomasi was mistaken. He had been freed from prison. It was obvious that Tomasi did not believe him. The port of Mestre was crawling with police. If Tomasi wanted Casanova arrested, all he had to do was yell for the nearest officer. Now, informants for the Inquisition were not necessarily loyal to the Venetian government. They were, however, loyal to their pocketbooks. Being an informant has always been a lucrative field. According to the FBI's Confidential Human Source Policy Guide, special agents in charge can pay each of their office's informants up to $100,000 per year. In Casanova's time, the figures were similarly impressive. Informants like Balbo Tomasi took their work seriously because they were paid handsomely for it. Casanova didn't give Tomasi a chance to do his job. He grabbed Tomasi by the collar and raised his fist in the air, fully prepared to strike him. Tomasi didn't put up a fight. He ran away, disappearing into the crowd. Casanova cursed. His fool of a companion had nearly cost him his freedom. Balbi had been helpful in the initial escape, but now, on the run, he was turning into a liability. Casanova resolved it was time to ditch the priest. Casanova explained their delicate position. We are now being searched for everywhere, and our descriptions have been circulated so accurately that we should be arrested at any inn that we dare enter together. But Balbi refused to part ways. He reminded Casanova that they were in this together and that they had agreed to never separate, despite the fact that Balbi had very recently done just that. Casanova tried a different tactic. He picked up a shovel off the ground and waved it at Balbi, shouting, I am going to bury you alive. Balbi burst into tears. Casanova guiltily apologized, but insisted that separating was the safest thing. He promised Balbi he would meet him at an inn on the northern border of Venice in a few days' time. Casanova gave Balbi all his money and told him to go. Of course, Casanova had no intention of meeting Father Balbi at the inn. He
He needed to get out of Venice and fast. But the day was getting on, and Casanova was sleep-deprived and starving. Before he made his way out of the country, he needed a good night's rest. A shepherd pointed him towards a little red house not far away. But there was one problem. The house was owned by the Capitano della Campagna, the chief of the Inquisition's police force. Obviously, showing up at the police chief's house was a risky move for an escaped convict. But Casanova was desperate. He walked in the direction of the little red house, hoping his disguise and his charm would be enough to fool the chief. When the door opened, a young boy greeted him. Casanova asked the child if his father was home. Before the boy could answer, the chief's wife appeared in the doorway and invited their visitor inside. She explained that her husband had ridden off in search of two escaped convicts. She said, one is a patrician and the other is a man named Casanova. Casanova didn't flinch. As usual, he played it cool, pretended to be a good friend of the chief's, and asked for a bed to sleep in. The wife said, of course. She helped dress Casanova's wounds, and he drifted off into a deep sleep. He woke up the next morning with a start. With the benefit of a good night's sleep, Casanova realized just how stupid he had been to come here. He immediately threw on his clothes and ran for the door without saying goodbye. Praising his luck, Casanova journeyed north, out of the Venetian Republic. He prayed that his good luck would carry him the rest of the way. Casanova knew the Inquisitors would never stop hunting him. He knew that the only way to truly escape their grasp was to journey to Paris and to make himself useful to the powers that be in France. Casanova had worn many hats in his day, playboy, playwright, poet, prisoner. After leaving Venice, he would finally have the opportunity to add another title to the list, world-class spy. Next week in part two, we'll follow Casanova to Paris and explore the events that led to his work as a spy for the Inquisition. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Espionage, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoy the show. The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Espionage is written by Stephen Walters. I'm Carter Roy. Espionage.